Innovate UK KTN. Connecting for positive change. Hello and welcome to episode six of the UK KTN Geo for Earth podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dallas Campbell. I'm a science and technology tele presenter. And I'm Susie Imber, the other host. I'm a space physicist and we'll be with you throughout this series chatting with some of the finest minds grappling with climate change. Yeah, so in this episode, we're going to be talking to Holger Kessler, who's the NUAR stakeholder and comms lead at the Geospatial Commission. And Denise McKenzie, partner, community and ethics at PLACE. And this episode is called Mapping Our Urban Environment to Fight Climate Change. Uh, Hope you enjoy the series. Hope it gives you food for thought. Enjoy this episode. Yes, thanks. I'm Holger Kessler. I am a a geographer originally and then had a 20-year career as a geologist for the government um, agency dealing with geology, which is the Geological Survey. I'm currently in London um, as I am seconded to the Cabinet Office for the last four years, working in the Geospatial Commission, which is um, a unit um, inside Cabinet Office dealing with yeah, getting data, spatial data, so maps, location data, more accessible and more used by people and governments and industry. So, yeah, and thanks for inviting me in. Well, thank you. And, you, and, and, and you're a, a newer stakeholder. What's newer? Yeah, newer, apologies for, for my notes. No, that's so the okay. Nas- the, the National Underground Asset Register is a, a big programme um, we're currently in the middle of, which is to get, uh, it's, it's something, it's, it's very dull in some ways because it's... Um, <laughs> okay, we've, we've had enough of Holger now, he's dull. <laughs> sharing of utility, um, they said, pipes and cables... Um, all the utilities and local authorities have no single central way of sharing data at the moment. So it's a national underground asset register. Underground as in actual underground, as, as, as opposed to some kind of psycholo- or some kind of like political underground, like the Subversive. Yeah. <laughs> like some dissident <laughs> group of... Uh... <laughs> uh, Holger, thank you very much. Uh, and Denise, Denise McKenzie. Hi, and thanks for the invitation. Um, It's really good fun to be on here this afternoon. So Denise McKenzie, like Holger, 20-year career in the geospatial sector, um, probably less on the technical side, more on the policy innovations project side. So I've worked in government doing lots of innovation, lots of nexus between public sector and private sector and how you make that work in collaboration. Um, then moved out into the international scene and have had great fun tripping around the world, doing work with the UN, um, traveling around places like Africa, working in international standards in geospatial. So a lot of different aspects of that. Recently have landed myself in the world of data ethics. So I've been working on that for the last two years. Oh, we're um, going to talk about that. I, think. <laughs> I know. So one of the, one of the co-authors of the Locust <laughs> Charter, which was released last year. So 10 principles looking at responsible and ethical use of location data. And just this year have started with a brand new organization called Place as their partner for community and ethics. So an organization looking to, I guess, build an entity that is ethics first, uh, ethics first in both data collection and also data use across the world. So lots of fun. Great. Now, listen, dear listeners, just before we pressed record, we were having this great discussion about data <laughs> ethics. And all of us have sort of different opinions, it seems, about data yeah. ethics. So it's, what, it's, it's a really kind of... Um, sort of hot topic. So I think that is this a good place to start, Susie? Or maybe we should should we build up to data ethics? Where where should we where should we begin with this? I think maybe we should start by talking a bit with uh, with our guests about um, how we share data. So how data is shared, both at a 
sort of personal level, but also at a corporate level. So Holger talks about this project that he's doing, which is about this underground asset register. Um, and many of you may know that I'm digging up my driveway and I want to know what's underneath it. And Holger's going to answer my question. But I'm really worried when you when you find the answer, we won't be able to use this analogy anymore. So we'll, it'll always be like a permanent mystery, uh, Susie's driveway and what happens underneath. Hey, maybe there'll be like buried treasure, like a Saxon We can I think there is the Saxon <laughs> hey, in my driveway. We, we can use but, geospatial data for archaeology and maybe find Saxon hordes generally. Absolutely. Oh, that's we'll do an episode on that's that, true yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a whole nother area I sorry think. i'm i'm diverse diverging no i'm digressing sorry <laughs> yeah okay. so we're diverging <laughs> we're, we're we're sharing we're sharing data um highly ineffectively uh, in in many places and that could be due to cultural um it could be technical it could be legal it could be financial there's all sorts of barriers to data sharing and in the in your drive um susie the 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 problem is there are lots of actors involved the highways the water the gas electricity and all those different they have no common interest in your drive they all have an interest in their own and they maintain they have data about their own but when it comes to the let's call it the common good or the greater good or someone who has an interest in the whole that's when it starts to get a slightly more tricky and we need to then build trust and collaboration all those soft words that we had in our the brief for this podcast why are they soft to... words why 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 are we even calling them soft these are important words aren't they why are they soft words tell me tell me why there's a what's the incentive for companies to share their data and what the barriers are that make them nervous about sharing their infrastructure on my driveway or anyone else's you know what's what, what are the barriers here so, yeah, um, technical um, data quality. So they might be worried about exposing the fact that we don't actually really quite know where the um, water mains okay. is in your road. Um, <laughs> there could be, there are, and I wanted to bring this across as well. In some cases, we don't want to share data with everyone because there might be national um, security implications. So there might mm. be a security concern about knowing where all, the, all your gas mains are. Mm-hmm. And then the final one, back to the... And Dallas, I agree. It's it's a soft but most important terms. Finally, it's a cultural um, thing about why should I share? I have the data that I need, but you know who's Susie, right? What, what what's in it for me if I share if I share with her? That's really interesting. Do you think there? Do you think? And we were sort of discussing this before we came on air. There is a cultural problem about trust in terms of sharing data some people are quite happy to share data they see it as a, as a beneficial thing for the for the whole for the group and other people get a little bit kind of well hang on I don't want to share my data or well, who's going to be watching my data there there is that suspicion and a, and a sense of conspiracy almost about it yeah no I would agree with that I think a lot of that's born out of the complexity if you like of the technology world that we've got it's too hard for anybody to understand these days and so I think naturally once you can't understand it you you tend to not trust it because I'm like well if I if I can't understand it how can I trust something that I don't understand so I think there's a real challenge for the sort of technology sector as a whole here to to say well okay how do I simplify what it is that we're doing how do I express the value and the reasons behind why we collect I mean the truth is we've been on like this golden trail of innovation with technology since like the 1960s where, you know, just funding, all we want is brilliant, new, shiny, make it more effective, make it more this.
but because we've been on that train, we've we've created such an incredibly complex space, and now everyone's going, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. I know yeah. you can, I know you can do that, but should you do that, and is that okay? It, it, it doesn't seem to be in line with the way that the human brain works, like, or or an understanding of human psychology, because I think I think quite exactly as you say, quite often people people are reluctant to change very often because people get used to a certain way of doing things. And then things change and it takes a while for people to catch up and then and that that's how things happen. That's how things progress. But this pace, the sheer pace of innovation at the moment, particularly things that you can't tangibly see, like data and modeling and geospatial, you can't actually physically put touch them. And the speed of it, people haven't had a chance to to keep up. Is that do you think the problem that makes people yeah, I don't know, I be think, resistant I think that, to I think there to is less so behind? Absolutely. And I think you see a really big difference between the generations here. So there's a very, very, and that's for technology providers, that's hugely problematic because you're trying to create solutions that fit uh, so many different people and so many different generations of, of activity and understanding. And so something you make that works brilliantly for like, you know, my 15 year old child is probably not going to work as great for my 80 year old dad. Um, but both of them need to have access to the same service. So how do you do that? And how do you do that so that both of them can trust and, and share the information that they need to share within that space? You know, it's a really, really challenging space that we're in at the moment because we've still got, you know, probably about two to three generations that are not digital natives. Um, so we've, we've got to kind of still work with that and make sure that they're included and not excluded and discriminated against because it's easier to just work with the younger ones. I feel a bit like a lot of the spatial data that is collected, and I could be wrong here, you can correct me, but I feel like it comes from our mobile phone information because that's how you know where I am. I never go anywhere without my phone, and that's true for many people. So I guess a lot of data, a rich source of data, is my mobile phone location. The, the other explosion uh, that's happening around is that there is the mobile, the mobile phone data, but then also we have all these devices, whether they are drones, satellites, um, increasingly every car is becoming a sensor of all kinds air quality sound road surface images around the road space so this idea of sensors everywhere you know it's not just your phone it'll be there'll be stuff everywhere sensing the environment for again the good and potentially annoying annoying reasons well i think i think more it's an, it's an awareness thing it's that i actually don't know who is collecting what and I don't know why they're using it and so I'm sure there's a really great argument for people having access to my data to make my life better and my journey easier and my access to services more clear and all of those things but I don't see that picture very clearly what I do see is the odd scandal where something goes wrong and then it makes people nervous the key word is they as well it's this idea that there is this there is this kind of amorphous they who are watching us and it, it sort of conjures up ideas of well I guess you know cons conspiracy theorists love the word they because they see it as us versus them they see and and, and suddenly you're not part of the they you're 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 the us and and there's them and they, it seems to kind of create these divisions for example there's I mean there's Susie and I we, we, we've talked about this this side and it, it may be a conspiracy theory you know you might be talking about a particular subject or a particular object or a particular thing and then suddenly it'll come up in in, in ad preferences the thing that you were talking about and you, you haven't typed it and it's like well are they listening to me and it starts and it may just be a coincidence that <laughs> oh don't say that I was I think it was a conspiracy theory okay who are they why are they listening to me 
And how are they listening to me? And why are they trying to sell me a lawnmower just because I talked about lawnmowers? If you have any one of those devices in your house that is helping you with automation and you can talk to it and it switches something on, including your phone for that matter, and you have got that software installed, it is listening because actually that's what it's designed to do. You know, and it's designed to do that. You've downloaded it because you want to be able to switch on your lights in the house or you've downloaded it because you want to be able to, you know, I've got it so I can switch on my office in the morning and put the heater on so that it's warm by the time I get nice. out to my office, which is brilliant. <laughs> but I'm conscious too that it's on all the time. And so actually, if you haven't, you know, if you're not knowledgeable enough to know how to switch off other settings that prevent it from listening to absolutely everything and utilizing that in the marketing then, then you're, you're, you are going to get those things. I mean, personally, a lot of the time I'm like, well, that's great. I'm, you know, probably going to get ads that are far more relevant to me if it listens to what I'm talking about anyway. Um, I don't want to know about like little kids and babies or what have you like that because my kids are bigger. But, you know, if I switched all of that off, it doesn't know anything about me. It's going to give things that are completely random based on maybe my age or other bits and pieces they know that are there. So, yes, it's listening. Yes, there are things you can do about it, but there is a big education that needs to happen here. Um, and I wouldn't say that, that those big organizations make that effort to, to make it simple to understand how you do those things. And there, there will often be those fantastic terms and conditions that say you have all the power to change all of these amazing things if you do a degree in understanding terms and conditions so that you can actually then be able to make that work. So I think we've we've got a really great challenge here of, how do you simply explain that so people are empowered to actually do that and have that that ability and agency to, to be able I to think we're it? all I think we're all terrified and I think all the companies that do this are terrified which is why they say things like your privacy is important to us they're saying it as a kind of value like somehow we really care about you and it's the, the only reason they do it is they don't want to get sued everyone's terrified about being sued and about you know so so we've created this structure of fear fear from the from the tech companies fear from the people who are worried about being listened to there's this sort of slightly orwellian thing to it. you're right we need to sort of sort this out somehow don't we yeah i i just wanted to 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 come back to your very direct question who are they who are they? So I, I, I rep- represent the It's companies. you, isn't it, Holger? It's you. Yeah. <laughs> you so sit there in the basement with headphones let's... listening, dialing, <laughs> tuning in to various let's, people. Let's, well, we, we do have um, listening agencies, of course, as well. And they are, they, you know, they, have, a public, they have a public-facing website and you can see what, what, they, <laughs> what they do. Um, no, seriously, the, the cabinet office, um, I'm just literally looking at the cabinet office intranet. And um, we do have a, uh, we are here to facilitate um, better policy and decision-making with data. And we are also here to protect the democracy and the constitution and the realm and, and all those good things that if, for the moment, we say we trust our government and we have a democratic system of elected representatives and their, and their agencies, and the Geospatial Commission is one of them, then, um, and the Office of National Statistics, I mean, I, I circulated an article earlier, that the population does actually in some instances, for some reasons, like track and trace, trust the government with location data if it's explained, and you have a feeling that this organization, the Office for National Statistics, doesn't do bad things with this data. So they, if they are government agencies, and they're doing it for the right purpose, for changing the world into a better place and mitigating climate change and digitizing the energy system for more smarter meters and all those things, and it's explained, and I think you're right, Susie and Dallas, for asking for better understanding of why is what is being collected, then I think, um, yeah, 
I think I, I agree with change. you. I agree with you. You know, all of these things, you wouldn't find many people that would opt out of wanting to have a greener economy, for example, and giving up their data for that reason. Absolutely, people would people would do that. If I think the issue as well is that because I don't know, we don't always know where all of our location data is coming from. And I've got so many apps on my phone. I've got no idea which ones have access to where I am and which ones don't or why they're using it. I don't know. I installed it four years ago, you know, just pressed yes on the terms and conditions. And now it's a bit out of control. And now I don't actually know anymore. And that's bad on me for not, you know, being tidier with my digital footprint. But I think it's probably reflective of lots of people. Do you think there's an old adage that people don't change their minds, they just die off? Is that, are we going to get to a point where, this, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm obviously very young, um, you know, <laughs> are we gonna, is it going to get to a point where actually things aren't going to change, but, but people will just die off and those who've grown up with this from the beginning are just, this is going to be fine and no one's going to question it. I think for perhaps like, you know, Denise, you were saying about the generational thing, older people do f- find this rather dehumanizing the fact that we've actually essentially well it, it, i'm being ridiculous here had our humanity taken away and we were reduced to data points yeah. I, whereas is, i would say a lot of younger kids actually find that it has it has increased their humanity and it is enabled exactly them a greater global yes connection with yes others that they would never have been able to have otherwise and it has enriched who they are yeah um so there's a completely i think you know like anything there will always be a section of society, age or otherwise, that is not comfortable with this. It's not comfortable with having this alter digital environment and digital persona space that will probably opt out. The danger in that is that if we rely, you know, the they in the government, the they that need all the data and the information, if we don't recognise that they're missing, then we will make decisions like they don't exist. You know, so for example... um, Occasionally you end up in situations where there's, you know, fantastic satellite imagery that's taken and there's these great automated layers created that are called cover, you know, and they sort of go, oh, this is all farmland or this is all agricultural land or what have you, when actually we know that there's an informal settlement of humans that live on that. But because of the way that data has been structured, the government now thinks that no one lives there. So those people now don't exist. Um, so I think that's the risk that we run always with this kind of alter digital world. And we talk about things like digital twins and, and all this stuff like being this accurate representation of the, the, the world is really hard to do because to do that, you'd have to forcibly make everybody participate and everybody would have to participate in the same way. And of course, that's not going to happen. Um, you, so there's some real talk- responsibility there, I think. Sorry, Denise. Can you talk a bit about the ethics of selling people's data and why, you know, I think that's another part of people's nervousness is that I give someone data and perhaps they could sell my data to somebody else. And so, you know, data is, is valuable to some degree. And, and so, again, people might feel that they're not secure in that giving data to one thing doesn't mean that it gets sort of widely shared. Is that a problem, do you think? Okay, so I'm going to switch a couple of terms here. I'm going to say that that actually what people want is in, to sell is information more than data itself. Like, yes, there's data, but at the end of the day, it's about getting information about something or analysis about something. And I would say that as humans, we have been doing that long before we had technology. We have been collecting information about the human population or about the world. We've been exploring and going and getting this stuff, selling that information in a book or a piece of research after that. We have actually been doing this for a really, really, really long time. And as long as we've been marketing and selling goods, we have been creating information about who's buying those, trying to learn about that, trying to predict how to do that better. And we've been selling that information. So I think the reality is we have been doing this as a human. This is not new 
with with the. I think the the thing is now, perhaps it's less easy to understand it's, and it's less and it's difficult. less tangible. Back to yeah. Dallas's point, you can't. It's less. So I was just going to make a very quick reference, Dallas, over to another earlier point of yours. Um, when you in our pre-chat, you know, I'm just going to switch off and opt out of all of this. Well, let's just think about like other ancient things that identify you you know your house has a number and your road has a postcode and your town has a name and there's an electoral register and there was a doomsday you know there was doomsday book and we've always gathered information to administer and make the town function better and get water to your house and get the mail to your house so and we've had maps been... which are digital yeah, twins <laughs> but the maps exactly but i think you are absolutely right and the geospatial commission and all the work that denise and the open data institute we're all doing the right thing we just need to amplify i think is to get over to you what are the positive outcomes from all this yes there's some commercial yes there might be some unethical things happening and we need to expose those and discuss those but look at these positive outcomes for the planet and for the society from all this i think you know it's funny like every time you do anything now like you go to the you go to the loo in in the in King's Cross station there's a row of buttons wanting to collect data how is your experience today everything's been reduced to an experience and it's like we want to make it improve your experience but actually no no no, no you don't you just want to collect data and that's the thing that you go through you know if you're at the airport you go through a thing and you're presented with a row of four buttons with smile with faces of various degrees of smiling and, and, and non-smiling there is, just seems to be that kind of obsession and, and once you kind of notice it it kind of gets in your head it's like oh my god just leave me alone i'm sick of data form i'm sick of kind of every time i do a talk now it's like we need to give you a feedback form in order to collect more and more data it's like soon we won't need to do anything we just need to lock ourselves away and just be, we're just reduced to a feedback form well, let's let's shift Let's shift slightly more towards using data for sustainability in the built environment. Yes, that's what we were going to talk <laughs> that about. That's going to be the title of what we were going to talk uh, about yes. today. And anyway, I let's if, start the podcast. I if we could kind of focus a bit, a bit more on on maybe highlighting some of the positive things that 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 can happen, and and maybe Holger maybe discussing a bit about the role of government in some of these uh, some of these programs that are running, and uh, you know, think about yeah. that a bit more. Uh, I mean, one of the most recent and uh, examples, and it's so nice to be out at um, conferences and workshops again, where you um, happen to meet and talk to someone who you hadn't planned to talk to. And I happen to talk to people who are talking to car companies um, and getting access to the sensor. So I briefly mentioned that earlier, sensor data from, from the cars. And, so, and Susie, this is also really important that what, we've, what we're if it's about you as a person and your example with um, Strava you had earlier, that's a very different thing than, than you know, your car measuring air pollution and just feeding the air pollution or the friction of the tyres and making the, the road, giving a feed to local authorities. This is what this company was doing. A feed to local authorities live monitoring hotspots or black spots on their road system where people are whacking the brakes on all the time and yeah, that's yeah. informing the, the the next the road gang to go out and fix this fix this road in particular yeah. that's such a positive outcome yeah and there's actually just winners everywhere there because yeah, it doesn't absolutely. identify you in the car it's just that yeah. something right so those are the um those are the, the the really positive um it's a really positive example i thought and and, and really exciting um and and what can government do and and, and well and and people like denise and, and the private sector we just need to make sure we have governance you know we we make sure that we have yeah ethics and 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 morals um enforced and upheld 
that it does not start to go and record other things that, you know, what music you have on in your car and, and you know, and your, your body temperature and then all sorts of other things that you could. So it's about standards and, 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 and ethics and, and, and rules. Yeah, and transparency is what I would say is one of the really big keys. It's it's very much about transparency of the data that's there. I mean, look, looking at the built environment in particular globally, we have some major challenges. The the reality is that the majority of the Earth's population are going to be in urban environments in the space of the next ten years and only continuing to grow. Um, and these are happening particularly in not in fantastically wonderful urban spaces like London and and the UK and the sort of developed world. It's happening in the developing world. And so it's happening where there isn't great road infrastructure. It's happening where we don't have good telecommunications. We don't have good sanitation, you know, and these are building up in informal settlements and places where there's flooding and so forth. And so actually sustainability or otherwise, it's not just the sustainability of the world. It's also the sustainability of the humans that live in these places as well and trying to get the data and the pictures. Now, some of that comes from mobile phone data. It's not always particularly fantastic. So from that perspective, to do sustainability well in these things, you have to look at a huge variety of different data methods to do collection, um, to be able to understand what the issues are and help governments. I can tell you right now, many of those governments in the developing space don't have the staff with the skill to understand a lot of the complexity of the data that's there now. They don't have access to it. Um, you know, as wonderful and as fantastic as satellite data is, they don't own it. It's owned by a commercial company, so there's no sovereignty to, to what they've got over that information about their own country and their own city. Um, so we've got some real challenges in getting that right data, because at the end of the day, a government person cannot make a great decision if they don't have the right information in front of them. You know, so you have to be trying to help um, look at that. So for our organisation, for example, we're trying to help with the collection of things like um, aerial photography and drone image capture. But our goal is ultimately for the government to own that data. So it's, it becomes theirs, they have sovereignty over it, they have the ability to understand their own city and urban environment and the citizens that are there. So they've got the right data and the right information that they need to make those decisions. And it's really powerful. I mean, these days with machine learning and so forth, I saw a fantastic piece of work where this university group looked across a really dense um, urban slum type area uh, with a lot of, you know, great some shops and things like that. And it was able to pick off exactly the type of um, air conditioner that was sitting on the top of each one of the roofs, work out the size of it, do an estimation of energy output and so forth to it, and then actually do a model that says, okay, so on a, a weather day where it's going to peak at 35 degrees, we know the spike is going to be X, which means now we can tell the government that they can adjust the energy load and then they need to have extra peak or they shut down other electricity usage activities in the day because we know the air conditioners are all going to eat up that information. Or another one that was able to look at roof types in slum areas too and look at weather and wind patterns and then say well actually in a natural disaster where you had a huge storm you're most likely to lose all the populate all the roofs and the building structures in this area so this is actually the spot you need to invest in so in that instance it's really powerful and i think to holger's point as well this is not individual information this is collective and community information but it is quite detailed so you do have to be incredibly careful with it and how That's really interesting that the difference between collective and, and and individual I think as individuals we kind of worry about ourselves as individuals but, but somehow I... we need to be educated that we that it's not about you the algorithm does not hate me uh, or, <laughs> or care or actually... care about me it's just I think yeah, I think that's the core, actually, of people's reticence is personal information, because if if it's anonymized, I would 
bet that a large number of people will give you anonymized data to make things better with great pleasure. As soon as you start attaching that to a person, I think that's when things start getting more difficult. And it's an education piece, you know, as you and, said. And yeah, I, and I, I was just going to mention, and, and, and I love listening to you, Denise, of your examples. It shows that I haven't really been out of the United Kingdom for a while. It's nice to hear examples from, from other places you, because you forget, yeah, we have a lot of great infrastructure in this country and back to the other point we are not sharing even in the developed world we're sharing data very ineffectively at times but um, um, I was just going to say uh, that if we go to health um, um, and and ideally in order to combat some of the worst you know outstanding diseases we've got to tackle we would like to have more information about Susie in order for that data to become so you then end up going towards so you know, the car data I mentioned earlier, that doesn't need to know about you at all. It's just interested in temperature and the friction. But if we're in health, for example, or, you know, we want to maybe do want to know your age and your, your, you know, your upbringing and your you know, and, and background. So that's where it gets very tricky. And I know the health, the National Health Service and, and you know, the research organizations are all over this space and, and trying to work out how we can they're, they're, they're very very careful with the data that they have but the data is extremely rich isn't it in the nhs the amount of data that they have is incredible and the things they can do with that data are phenomenal yes. for the benefit mm. of all of us yep. and they are rightly very careful about it it's probably pandemics a good example. for example pandemics you know actually being able to model viruses and stuff is just phenomenal um, and again it's that, that funny thing talking about about sort of ethics and, and, and things the, the old adage that any technology that is far enough in the future becomes indistinguishable from magic and the faster the technology develops the more magical it becomes almost and in a way that sort of magical sense of it being able to see think before you've even thought what you were thinking about is slightly disconcerting you know to to the human brain sometimes yeah, no, no, I would agree. And I want to throw something else in here too, because we talked about collective benefit to community too. I think there's a really interesting area when we talk about data too, that is the the, the communities that are vulnerable that actually need to be protected too. So there's a, a rightly important piece here when you collect information about individuals, where if you can identify that actually they are from uh, perhaps a group that is going to be discriminated against or is uh, perhaps health-wise more vulnerable than others, to me, there's actually an ethical responsibility to to find that information out so that then you can look at how you do the protection of that. Like Indigenous populations are a perfect example of this one. You know, still typically around the world, we have great racial issues with, with between, um, you know, colonial groups that have come in and, and Indigenous populations. And as a result, many sacred sites, many groups are often at risk uh, because of, of who they are and what they are. So our ability to kind of have some people know where that is, but then not others know where that is. And so I think the level of access to information becomes a really critical point when we're talking about these groups. Um, we're sort of slightly running out of time. I'm sort of slightly conscious of time. And I, I want to, as ever, I want to kind of get your opinions about where we're going to be in in, in the future, where the, the sort of direction of travel we've sort of touched on and, and looked at. But if we can kind of project a little bit five or 10 years into the future, what 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 are we going to be looking at and what would you consider to be successful in the sort of geospatial world what what would be you know your magic wand if you could wave it what would you like to see what do you think we'll see um holger yeah i'm going to go back to to a local example i i would love to see in 10 years time local decisions around my town or my district being done in a much more 
open and transparent um, uh, manner. So planning, simple things that affect all of us, planning decisions, bypasses, um, HS2, a big one, uh, but it could be you know, your local conservation area or uh, changing a shop front. All of that, I would love to see, like our children play in 3D worlds all the time. I'd love to be able to say to the town council and to the planners in the town, let's go onto the street, whatever headsets or whatever way we've got or a tablet and look at proposals and make more informed, data-rich, data-informed decisions and have a much more democratic and consensual process. So that, that, that's, that, that's where I think um, we are heading because at the moment we're sticking papers on land posts. Nobody knows where these maps are. No one understands the process, and it's actually undermining slow, sort of our our you know our our system and democracy. So that that's one aspect I think will happen soon, and we'll get a lot better. Digital hippies. That's what we want. <laughs> Denise, what's your what's your thoughts? Well, uh, you know, to some degree, this is what I'm in the middle of trying to build at the moment is my future, <laughs> what I hope it's all going to look like. Look, I, I hope, and I'm going to go a bit more, I guess, international when I look at this. I hope that five to 10 years from now, we have governments that are accessing better data about their populations. Um, I th hope that we, and not just accessing that better data, but have people working within them that are able to provide the right analysis and information that's required for decision makers. Because globally, we have got some monster problems. We've got monster health problems. We've got monster environmental problems. We have population explosion. So there, there is that side of it. Um, the other thing, and this is, I guess, key to, to what our organization is trying to do, is that I think that we are past an era where it's okay to just innovate without being questioned. Um, and I think that we are moving into a space where the citizens of the world are expecting now that governments and private organisations start to design with ethics first and start to think about the implications, better understand the unintended consequences of the systems that they're building before we start hurtling down with a I've got a solution, understand the problems better. Um, and I think that that's going to be enforced. I think people are becoming far more savvy consumers in what they're doing and they're looking for organisations that are showing and are able to do that explanation and transparency, um, which I think means we all have to get learn how to speak simply, which will be a real challenge for us technology people. Oh, that's my dream. That's my utopian dream is a world where people just talk simply without without the kind of obfuscating waffle <laughs> that goes well, on. I, I love both of your visions, so I genuinely hope that, that they both come true. So uh, we're out of time for today, though. Thank you so much for joining us, Holger and Denise. Okay, that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Thank you very, very much to Holger and Denise for taking part. Most of all, thank you for listening. And uh, we look forward to your company very much next time. Don't forget to get in touch with Luca Bordello or Andy Bennett at KTM if you'd like to chat or collaborate further with them on any of the topics we've been talking about today. And of course, as ever, the link to the publication Net Zero and the Power of Place, which accompanies this podcast series, can be found in the podcast description. Yes, indeed. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Innovate UK KTM. Connecting for positive change.